Hey everyone, it's Liz Kelly, and I want to tell you about the second annual Ringer NBA Palooza we have going on next week on Tuesday, October 16th. We'll be streaming a live marathon countdown to tip off with Bill Simmons and the Ringer NBA crew, featuring live podcasts, special guests, Ringer original shorts, and culminating in a Sixers Celtics watch party. You can check it out live on Tuesday across all of our social media platforms. And don't forget to check out our brand new NBA Palooza merch on theringer.com slash shop. This train don't carry nothing but the righteous and the holy. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joined today by staff writer Ben Lindbergh. Hello. And staff writer Zach Cram. Hello. Now, it feels like I was just talking to you guys, but the Red Sox took care of business against the Yankees, which means we can get right back down to it and preview the two league championship series. So that's what we're going to do for the next half hour to 40 minutes or however long we end up arguing about the merits of David Price versus uh, Nathan Eovaldi or whatever happens. Um, So Bill Simmons and Jacko did a podcast uh, about the Red Sox Yankees series. So look, looking back on it, um, we're going to try not to to trample on what they've already talked about, but do either you guys, I guess I'd say how put a percentage on how certain you were that Craig Kimbrell was going to blow that lead on Tuesday night. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, if you could watch a, a real-time graph of my certainty. During yes, that where, is, <laughs> where is the peak? <laughs> it, it was, hmm. I, I mean, I think that Stanton really deflated it, right? Because before Stanton just chased wildly as he mm-hmm. did for much of this series, it really looked like Kimbrell wanted to give that inning away and Stanton seemed to really help him out there. But I would say that my peak certainty that he was going to blow it was eh, probably something like six. 60%. I was I was feeling a, a Yankees comeback there. The peak certainty for me was after Gary Sanchez connected on that full count fly ball. If you watch <laughs> the replay, Kimbrel doesn't even turn around. So for a very split second, I thought he had crushed the ball so far that Kimbrel was just walking off the mound back to the Boston dugout. And then the camera angle changed and you saw that he got just under it a tiny bit. Uh, and after that, I kind of felt like that was the one chance the Yankees really had and Torres was not going to be able to do it. But while that ball was hanging in the air for a split second until I saw that Benintendi was going to have room to catch it, right. I thought that was going to be the most dramatic home run. Uh, it was going to be a grand slam in years. I'm with Ben. I was going to say my my peak while the ball was not in play probably was about 63% sure that Kimbrel was going <laughs> to blow it. And then that went up to about 98% <laughs> right. between between Sanchez hitting the ball and when I saw Ben and Tendi stop running. Um, Zach, I heard some interesting things about you in the office last <laughs> night while this was going on. Well, so the thing I'll say is I was a bit surprised by how passionately my fandom was activated. I was kind of resigned to the the fact that the Yankees were going to lose. Uh, last year, I think I wrote the piece about how the Yankees lost in Houston, but it was okay. And similarly, last night, I, I had already started reflecting, oh, the Yankees had a pretty good season. What does this mean for next year? And then the ninth inning comeback happened, and it, it awoke something in me that I didn't realize was still there. I'm sure that at some point in the near future, I will become more of a, a dispassionate uh, baseball watcher like you know especially like Ben was much more of a Yankees fan when he was a kid 
true. I'm sure I'll get there eventually. So I'm glad that (laughs) I still have that in some part of me. I've already lost my basketball fandom doing this kind of thing professionally. So it's still there. And I wasn't quite at the level that, like, Michael, you were during the Super Bowl, but I was... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I make no pretenses about being professional with uh, NFL or even football fandom in general. But so to give some behind the scenes, I was uh, in the office and in the TV area. I was with Shocker, who is uh, a wonderful ringer employee. And after the Neil Walker hit by pitch, which scored a run, loaded the bases for Sanchez, he got up to go alert somebody in another room that... Uh, Kimbrel might be on the verge of blowing the save and I snapped at him to sit back down because that's where the <laughs> mojo was um, and he was I think a little bit alarmed Zach your face was described to us by our colleague Mallory Rubin as a mask of madness <laughs> I was I was pacing a bit it, it was an emotional emotional ninth inning yeah it's funny you you mentioned my loss of fandom and there are times when I miss it and I wish that I had the mask of madness back but I think that last night after the bottom of the ninth was one of those times when I was happy not to have it anymore because there was a time when I was a Yankees fan and when losing by one run to the Red Sox with Aaron Boone making the same mistakes that he had made the night before but even worse if that's possible would have probably kept me up most of the night and bothered me for days to come. And now we're just previewing the championship series and I can look forward without being bitter at all. So it has its advantages. I would say that, you know, we collectively are dispassionate. Ben is dispassionate just as a matter of course. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I don't, I'm certainly less involved in, you know, emotionally invested in the Phillies just as a matter of of professionalism and this, you know, once this is your job, I, I, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but like once this is your job, it's, it's not as exciting to follow a team. And, you know, it it never really works the same way. But I don't know, we'll see. I say that uh, knowing that the Phillies haven't done anything worth getting emotionally invested in in the past seven years. So, um, you know, maybe that'll change if they ever get good again. Uh, do you guys have either of you guys have anything more to say about the Yankees before we move on to? Boston and Houston? I mean, I think the tendency, of course, is to focus on Boone and what went wrong in the series and the weirdness of the Yankees going back-to-back games without hitting a home run in Yankee Stadium. I'm sure there aren't a whole lot of Yankees fans who are sort of zooming out and taking the long view and being very measured about this whole thing. But the season was obviously a success. I mean, it almost always is for the Yankees, but particularly this year because they won 100 games, they broke in a bunch of rookies, they broke the all-time home run mark, they found Luke Voigt out of nowhere. So much went right for them, and they're so set up for the future because the Yankees have money to spend. I know that's an evergreen statement that applies in almost every season, but this season they were at least forcing themselves not to spend as much as they usually do for one brief reprieve so that they could then spend again in the future. And I'm sure that will be coming. So they now have the core and they have the youth and they have the prospects on the way and they will soon be adding free agents, I'm certain. And so the Yankees are going to be good for who knows how long. And maybe Aaron Boone will have figured out how to manage a bullpen by then. Yeah, that's definitely one place where, I mean, at least you know what your problems are if if uh, Aaron Boone is... Um, managing like this in the playoffs. Anything else from uh, on the Yankees from you, Zach? Uh, I think just the lineup and roster decisions over the series, and especially last night, uh, reinforced my belief that the Yankees would 
in the offseason make a play for Manny Machado instead of Bryce Harper. It's one thing to bench Miguel Andujar for a defensive replacement late in games you're already winning, but to go into an elimination game and not even start him because you're afraid that CeCe Sabathia might allow ground balls in the direction of third base, I think was a big flashing sign that they aren't opposed to the idea of moving him to a different position, maybe moving him to designated hitter and moving Stanton back into the outfield next year. But I don't think he's going to preclude them from from investing a lot of years and a lot of money into a really established third baseman. All right. Well, let's move on to the team that actually won, uh, if only just, uh, on, <laughs> on Tuesday. The Boston Red Sox, they will host game one of the American League Championship Series on Saturday. Uh, they will host the defending champion Houston Astros, who uh, these teams faced off uh, last year in the division series. Houston had home field advantage for that series, and it was it was a four-game series, and the last game was close, but it didn't really feel that that close last year. Houston just pretty much had their had their way with Boston, including Chris Sale, who uh, will probably start one of the first two games uh Maybe even game one, depending on how much um, how much that relief appearance last night took out of him. As of when we're recording on Wednesday night, we don't know. Or Alex Cora hasn't made any announcements about his starting pitchers. AJ Hinch has said he's going with Justin Verlander in game one and Garrett Cole in game two, which is unsurprising. But it's nice to know that in advance. So each for each of these series, we're gonna tick off a couple storylines that uh, stand out to us, mention at least one player who has the potential to really swing the series on his own, and then we'll all make predictions. So the first uh, storyline I want to talk about is the with the composition of the Astros pitching staff. It's very right-handed heavy. They, they only carry two left-handed pitchers, Dallas Keuchel and Tony Sipp, for uh, the divisional series. And the Red Sox have a lot of guys who hit left-handed and have big platoon splits. Uh, Jackie Bradley, Rafael Devers, and Andrew Benatendi all have uh, platoon splits this year in the neighborhood of uh, 180 to 200 points of OPS. But the Red Sox have gotten away with not not carrying any lefties other than Sip because their right-handed relief pitchers uh, in particular have, got, have done just fine at getting lefties out. So that'll be an interesting battle, uh, not just... Can these left-handed Red Sox hitters hit off Ryan Presley uh, or Roberto Osuna or whoever the Yankees bring out of the the lineup? But how does this influence Alex Cora's uh, lineup decision making, his his in-game substitutions? And it'll kick off. I think this is going to be one of the focal points of the tactical battle between Cora and his uh, his old mentor AJ Hinch. So that's one thing I'll be looking for. Expect to see a lot more Brock Holt, I guess. Uh, I think I would probably expect to see a similar lineup uh, from Boston that they had in Game 3 against New York. Obviously, it was very successful scoring 16 runs against Luis Severino and some relievers, but that would allow, like you said, those left-handed hitters to get into the lineup more. I think going up against Verlander and Cole, you're not necessarily going to have an advantage against any of those pitchers or any of Houston's relievers just because of how good they are. The Indians didn't have much success in their series against those pitchers, but I think that would, I guess, at least push the odds a little slighter in Boston's favor as opposed to them starting Kinsler and Nunez like they did against uh, Masahiro Tanaka in Game 2, who was the other right-handed starter the Yankees threw at them. 
Yeah. And you mentioned Brock Holt. I feel like we sort of made light of Brock Holt, or at least I did, on our most recent episode. And since then, I've developed a greater appreciation for recent Brock Holt, who has uh, suddenly become one of the best hitters in baseball. As Jeff Sullivan at Fangrass pointed out this week, he's just been a different guy since early August or so. He's been pulling the ball and he's been striking out a lot and just hitting for power. He's gone from being sort of this jack of all trades who could just plug into a, a bunch of positions positions to being this guy who seems to be a legitimate offensive force all of a sudden. I don't know how much you can trust two months of performance, but he seems to have made some stylistic changes that coincided with this big uptick in offense. So I don't know that he's someone you look at really as a as a replacement for Nunez anymore, although the Red Sox seem to view him that way. I'd rather have Brock Holt hitting and probably doing everything else right now. Yeah, it's well, you talk about the how much how much stock do we put in uh, a hot two month span? It It's really I mean, this is where you really have to drill down past the numbers, because if it's something like an approach change, like we saw Daniel Murphy um, change his approach a little bit. And that led to the hot uh, playoff run with the Mets in 2015. And that just turned out to be the player he was going forward. So if yeah. this is something mechanical or approach wise with Brock Holt, there's no reason. I mean, that's the story of baseball is playoff series being swung by guys tweaking something at the right time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and that, I mean, I don't know if he's the, the answer at third base or whatever, or, you know, the answer at, at second, you move Kinsler to the bench full time, but the answer at third is definitely not Eduardo Nunez at this point. I mean, if, if he's in there for his defense and we saw the way he chucked the ball around the infield against, uh, against the Yankees. I mean, that's just not a, it's untenable. I'd, I'd consider <laughs> leaving them off the roster entirely at this point. Yeah. My level of certainty in a Yankees comeback actually spiked when Eduardo Nunez had to make a play on a slow roller <laughs> to get yeah. the last out of that inning. What are the odds that Eduardo Nunez throws that into the stands? Pretty high. <laughs> so I was sort of surprised that he actually completed that play and also kind of realized anew that Gleyber Torres actually isn't as fast as I just sort of assumed he was. Yeah, based right. On his, <laughs> Small, his young, age. shortstop. You yeah, assume middle infielder. Yeah. Right. And not so much. And he showed that there. I also think even beyond just looking at the platoon considerations before we dive too far into the the strategic parts of this, like just looking at the series to figure out what storyline I was interested in, we have a lot of just really talented players in this series. I know Brock Holt might be the object of fascination at the moment, but this series could have three of the top five MVP finishers in the American League between Betts, Bregman, and Martinez, and three of the five top Cy Young finishers in the league with Verlander, Cole, and Chris Sale. So I think the top-line talent is pretty even, which is why these considerations matter, but it will be exciting just to see these matchups from the very first inning of Game 1, seeing all of these like best players and best pitchers in the league go against each other. To say nothing of the reigning American League MVP and Jose Altuve, former Cy Young winners in Porcello and Price, like this is as big, you know, as concentrated uh, a group of talented ball players as you'll see in the, uh, this day and age. Yeah, I think that's sort of my storyline. I mean, it's it's the most obvious one you could come up with, I guess. But these are the two teams with the most wins in baseball by quite a lot. And neither one really exceeded its true talent by all that much. I, I think we all think that the Astros are probably better than Boston, even though they finished with five fewer wins. But 
this is the class of baseball in 2018. These are the two best teams with the best talent. And I like seeing that at this time of year because I'm all for randomness. And you always want some somewhat surprising or fluky team in the championship series round. And I guess the Brewers occupy that role, not to belittle the Brewers because they're a good team too. But these are the two teams that dominated all season long. The Red Sox ran away with things. The Astros actually had something of a race in the AL West. But they're the two teams in baseball that really probably deserve to be here the most, and they are. And so it's nice when that works out and you get a mix of something surprising, but also something really predictable that just gives you the the highest caliber of talent. And Houston is attempting to become the first World Series winner to return to the championship round since the Phillies did in 2009. They're the only team to do it since the Yankees dynasty of the late 90s, early aughts. So... The fact that, I mean, we talked about on the last pod that we think this Houston team is even better. They're not the number one seed, but I think the fact that they're in this position and like I consider them the favorite, I think they probably have a a better and deeper lineup and, and bullpen than Boston does is a pretty remarkable statement in and of itself. We haven't had many teams in this position before, especially as the playoffs have expanded and it's become harder to advance through so many rounds. Yeah, it is so hard to repeat, let alone three-peat. I think we should era adjust our definition of dynasties just to oh, be yeah, absolutely. two. <laughs> because just winning two in a row is pretty amazing these days. Just given how competitive the whole league landscape is, how smart every team is, there just aren't really huge mismatches the way that there used to be, whether it's payroll or whether it's just intelligence and, and style of team building. And with all the playoff rounds, it is just really hard to survive, even if you are the best team. So if the Astros make it back and win again, it will really be a a testament to the job that they did building up this roster. Yeah, to that point, I mean, I think mentally, at least in baseball, I've already started thinking about dynastic teams in just in terms of, of winning the division. Like, you know, I sort of think about the Cubs that way, making, even though they've only made one World Series and won mm-hmm. one World Series, you know, making the uh, NLCS three years in a row. You think of the Dodgers winning yeah, the- Dodgers six in a row. Six in a row. That Those Phillies teams, they only won one title and made two World Series, but they won five division titles in a row. Stuff like that. I mean, even getting two uh, World Series with more or less the same core, you know, you have to go back to the 0-4 I don't even know, actually know if you count the 04 to 07 Red Sox because there was so much turnover between those two teams. It was really, even then, David Ortiz was was one of the the very few holdovers between uh, the 04 team and the 07 team. So, you know, past that, I guess you have to go back to the uh, to the Yankees at the turn of the century. Well, there there are the the turn of the decade Giants, of course, but they didn't oh, win. Right. Did, they didn't win their division the year that right. the year between their titles. So they're I think a, a case of their own making, separate from these other teams we're talking about. Like the Astros, I could foresee winning a hundred games each of the next three seasons. I wouldn't put them on the same level as the Giants, both in terms of titles and regular season miraculous. The Giants won 90 games in any of those seasons. (laughs) I've decided that forgetting them was not an oversight, but an editorial statement. (laughs) Yeah. And much has been made of Cora's presence on the Red Sox and his recent history with the Astros, but it is possibly meaningful just in light of the Cleveland comments that we talked about in the previous round about how Indians players were saying that the Astros were so well-prepared and that they just had such 
such great insights and scouting. And obviously, Cora was very recently privy to whatever it is that the Astros are doing to prepare for this sort of series. And you would think that he has brought over some of those insights and practices to the Red Sox. So I don't know how their preparation compares to Cleveland's, compares to Houston's, but at least there's no giant knowledge gap there. Yeah. And I'll say one other thing on on Cora too before we move on to the to the next bit in this series. He was hired for this moment because there was nothing wrong with the way John Farrell did uh, manage that team in the regular season. He won the division as often as not, um, but it was because he couldn't get out of these playoff matchups. So this is like I almost hesitated to to put Alex Cora. I don't even remember where I put him on my hypothetical manager of the year ballot because like winning 108 games just. It almost feels incidental. Like this is what this is what he's there to do now is to get them over the hump in the playoffs. Um, but in order to do that, he will need. And we're gonna uh, we've each picked one player who we think the series could be won or lost with. Um, I picked David Price, not to belabor the David Price pitching in the playoffs thing, uh, which has been talked about here and elsewhere. But if he keeps them in a game in game two. That would just be so huge, you know, because Sale versus Verlander is a pretty even matchup. But the problem is the Astros have two or three other good starters to to go to um, beyond that. And the Red Sox really need something, at least one really good start at a price if they're going to have a shot at winning this series. Yeah, I, I picked Nathan Avaldi just because I think he matches up better with the Astros than Price does on paper. I mean, the Astros just destroyed left-handed pitching this year. And uh, they were good against everyone. You you can't really even find a weakness. You have to go to like a, a sub-split leaderboard to find something that the Astros are actually bad at. But they had a 123 weighted runs created plus against left-handed pitching this year. That's 23% better than the league average. That was way better than every other team. And Evaldi, obviously, unlike Sale, unlike Price, he throws with his right hand. He's been fantastic lately. He had a one-something ERA down the stretch in September. And then he was gave, spectacular he, yeah, in game three against He was. Games. Yeah. He he went seven, which for a starter to go seven innings in the 2018 playoffs, that's like a complete game, basically. <laughs> for Evaldi to go seven <laughs> innings at any point in history is like a complete game. Right. I and, say this is someone who's still holding on to Nathan Evaldi's stock from 2010, 2011. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's been a different and, and better pitcher in some ways this year, and he's historically been pretty tough against right-handed hitters. The Astros have a lot of those. Now, there's only so much that you can read into that because we said or thought the same thing heading into the ALDS, I think, that the Indians matched up really well with the Astros from that perspective, right? Because they were throwing Kluber and Carrasco and Clevenger against the Astros, and that seemed like it would work, and it didn't. They got massacred. So it doesn't mean that Evaldi is going to do great, but he also throws really hard. And for whatever it's worth, the Astros have been a little less productive relative to other teams against hard pitching this year. That is fast pitching. And I don't know how predictive that is, but at least looking backward, they've been a little less potent against pitchers like Evaldi. Let me say one other thing before uh, we move on to Zach's pick. If Valdi starts game three of this series again and matches up against Dallas Keuchel, I think Keuchel's the one Astro starter you can really get to in mm-hmm. this series. So he would potentially start either, I guess, with the series split with a chance to really 
make a huge mark at a really critical point in the series. So, Zach, who do you have? I picked a different Red Sox pitcher, Matt Barnes, who sort of, in my mind, works as a, as a proxy or a stand-in for the entire Red Sox reliever core before Kimbrel. I think with this series structure, which is a 2-3-2, two, two, has fewer off days as the first round did, so Cora might be less able to turn to guys like Porcello and Sale in the eighth inning as the bridge to Kimbrel. So even if you trust Kimbrel, you have to survive the innings before him. The Astros lineup has really feasted on the underbelly of bullpens of late against the Indians, Uh, Six Cleveland relievers threw in that series, and every single one of them allowed a 375 on base percentage or worse. So there wasn't a single effective reliever uh, who Cleveland had. Even if you go back to last year's World Series, like the Dodgers' middle relievers were part of the problem against Houston. So if they're not able to secure those innings, uh, they might, even if they get out to a lead against Houston starters, not be able to hold those through the rest of the game. All right, so now it's time for Ben's favorite part of the podcast, predictions. So, Ben, who's going to win and how many games and who's going to be the series MVP? I'm going to go with the Astros. I, I would guess that we all are, unless you have a contrarian take that you're waiting to now debut I here. I learned my lesson. <laughs> well, I'll take the Astros, and I think I will say five, five games, I'll say. I, I lean towards six, but I'm going to get aggressive and say five. And as for my MVP picks, I'm going to be really, really boring with those in both of these series because I think we have the likely MVP winners for the regular season in each league with these teams. And I don't see any reason to pick anyone other than the best players. So I'm, uh, I'm Guess I'm gonna go. I can't pick Mookie Betts probably because I'm picking the Astros to win the series. So I guess I will just go with Justin Verlander and say that he's gonna go out there and throw a couple dominant starts. Particularly if they win in five, you'd think right. that, that would be behind yeah. two good starts from Verlander. Zach, I also have the Astros in five, which is weird. The Red Sox won 108 games; they're the home team, <laughs> but the Astros are just so good. Uh, my MVP pick is. I thought about Bregman, but that's like a little too obvious after the first round. So I'll go with George Springer, who has really played well the last two playoffs. I could see him adding even more leadoff home runs to his resume and just continuing his playoff success. Well, here I thought picking Astros in five was going to (laughs) be aggressive or controversial, but apparently that's just what we're all doing. So give me Houston in five. Give me Marwin Gonzalez for... ALCS MVP. I think if he hits another series winning double on a pitch over his head, I mean, if he's doing that, then he's swinging a hot bat right now. And I, that's feels just as predictive as Bregman or Springer or anything they've done in the, or Verlander, you know, anything they've done in previous playoff series or down the stretch in the regular season. So Astros in five, um, we're not, are we collectively even close to 500 in these these predictions? <laughs> I don't know because I I wipe all predictions I make from my mind the moment I make them <laughs> okay. because I make them under duress. But my inkling is that I didn't do very well last time. No. Well, we both had we both had the Yankees. Uh, we both had the Astros in a close series, and we collectively, famously, all picked both of the the wild card games wrong. So. <laughs> Okay, so congratulations to the Red Sox on making the World Series after we've all uh, gone all in on Houston. And let's go to, I will actually literally be in Milwaukee for uh, Friday's game one. Um, Zach, you're going to Dodger Stadium for 
at least some of the the middle games, right? Yes. So we will have an actual in-person ringer presence at uh, at the, this series. Right now, the only starting pitcher, I believe, who's been announced is Clayton Kershaw for game one uh, for the Dodgers. Not that it matters that much from Milwaukee's perspective. Let's start with uh, the storyline uh, storyline to watch. Uh, Zach, why don't you kick us off? So I think the obvious clash between these two teams is how their pitching has been handled. The Dodgers have sort of the three top-line starters you would want in Ryu, Kershaw, and Bueller. I know Bueller struggled uh, not even for a full inning, but like for the span of eight pitches against the Braves, but the other two starters through shutouts, and that is, I think, why they advanced, whereas Milwaukee sort of pieced together from their entire 12 or 13 or 14, however big their September roster got, uh, pitching rotation to win the NL Central down the stretch and then beat Colorado. So I'm curious to see how that holds up uh, in an actual seven-game series, but I'm especially curious to see how it plays against the Dodgers, who run a lot of platoons. They start certain guys against lefties and certain guys against righties, and there's not huge overlap between those groups. So I wonder if Milwaukee wants to pitch Wade Miley or Gio Gonzalez one day, will they start a right-handed opener for an inning, lock LA into one platoon lineup, and then throw the left-handed nominal reliever, but really a starter for five innings and give them the platoon advantage. This is what the Washington Senators famously did in 1924 World Series Game 7, where they started a left-handed reliever for only two batters to ruin the platoon advantage that the Giants had. Uh, And I could see Craig Council, who has been really adventurous with his bullpen over the last month, trying some gambit like this. That's similar to what I was going to go to. It it has to do with the the Brewers' bullpen versus the platoon uh, advantage. But, I mean, I don't need to dump on what the Rockies did offensively any more than I already did earlier this week. But it, it just never became an issue that the Brewers are trying to get two innings at a time from a lot of their relievers. You know, Corbin Burns and Josh Hader being the two most prominent examples. If Brandon Woodruff doesn't start a game, he'll probably go multiple innings out of the uh, out of the bullpen. And if you do that, Dave Roberts has the tools and I think the tactical savvy to go after, you know, to substitute. If he's faced with Hader for a couple innings, he could go right-handed if, if his lineup falls in a certain way. The same thing... Uh, but the reverse with Woodruff or, or Burns or if Jeffress goes more than more than one inning, for instance. So this will obviously come down to Milwaukee's bullpen and how much of their success against Colorado they can replicate against a deeper lineup with, I think, a, a likely more hands-on manager in Dave Roberts. So it's I'm just sort of piggybacking off of your narrative. Ben, do you have uh, – or do you just want to jump in this canoe with us? Yeah, can I piggy on both of your backs? Because I, I I was going to talk about Council too because I just think that he's going to be probably the busiest manager in this round or just have the most decisions to make. He's going to be racking up the most mileage, walking to the mound, making pitching changes and scratching out potential lineups and rewriting them. I mean, he has said – we're going to count on the bullpen because they've been an important part of the team all year. They're going to be an important part of this series. 
He said somewhat cryptically, we've done things differently. This is talking about the pitching, but this is a different series with different requirements for our pitching staff. He also said that he's going to be running different lineups out there depending on who's pitching for the Dodgers, Dodgers lefties. So he's just going to be mixing and matching. And I think I just have a lot of confidence in him to do that because he's been doing this job now since the spring of 2015. And we just saw in the Yankees series that no matter how great a bullpen you build for a manager, if he is not experienced, if he's not equipped to use it, then it's really somewhat neutral. And Council has shown all year that he does know when to push those buttons. And I think he has a better sense of the urgency of October and that he will be making those moves very quickly, that we won't see Brewers starters left out there to take the loss when there's a better option available. And he really does have a lot of arms he can draw on. So I have a lot of confidence in him to make those moves, but I think maybe the series is as dependent on his performance, or at least the Brewers aspect of it is, as any team is on its manager. One thing I'm interested to see is, you know, with the series only going, with the Rockies series only going three games and never playing more than two days in a row, you can use the the bullpen even more frequently than Council did. Um, there's essentially no real consideration for fatigue. And I wonder if with those that three-game stretch in the middle of the series on the road, you know, whether we're going to see um, Gio Gonzalez didn't start in didn't start a game in the uh, division series. And he's a guy who can turn over the lineup at least twice, maybe go even uh, farther. You know, Chasin probably was on a shorter leash because he was on short rest in game two of the uh, division series. So I think Milwaukee has the opportunity to go a little bit more traditional if that's what circumstances dictate it. What, you know, with the understanding that they could get, just because of how many good relievers they have and how many of those guys can go for multiple innings, you know, they could get five, six innings out of the bullpen pretty much every night, even with the uh, the three-game uh, stint in the middle. So this is, uh, this is just making it a little hard to handicap the series just because I, you know, it, we don't really know what the uh, – what the Brewers pitching situation is going to shake out like. And I think that just with that uncertainty, it's, it's tough to extrapolate and see how all the rest of the matchups work out. Uh, so what, you know, what we have all sort of gone in deep on, on the bullpen. Is there anything else that, that stands out to, to you guys? You know, I think Yelich and Kane, for instance, their ability to get on base will, will be the second most, uh, important thing to determine the, the Brewers success or failure. Um, but, you know, any what else, anything from the Dodgers perspective um, stick out? Yeah, I think from the Dodgers perspective, you have kind of the same strengths and question marks we talked about before the Braves series. I don't know how much we learned about the team in that span, but I think their strengths just look really strong. They have the depth. They have a lot of really quality pinch hitters they can use uh, in the late innings. But the one guy I would highlight even beyond Kershaw, who's starting game one, is Hyunjin Ryu, who, after he returned from the disabled list in August, in 52 and two-thirds innings, had a 1.88 ERA with more than a strikeout per inning, and then shut out Atlanta for seven innings in game one of the NLDS. And this gives the Dodgers uh, a bit of an advantage over what they even had last year, where Yu Darvish wasn't up to uh, up to what they expected when they traded for him and giving the Dodgers such a 
a great second pitcher behind Kershaw gives them a real chance to steal either of the first two games in Milwaukee, sort of similarly to how the Astros have Verlander and Cole going in the first two games against Boston. I don't think Ryu is as good as Kershaw. I don't think he's as good as Garrett Cole, but they have the pitching advantage in both of those games, which puts Milwaukee in a defensive position just to start the series. Yeah, and I was going to bring up Kenta Maeda as my player to watch in the series just because he was so important for the Dodgers in their deep playoff run last year. He got into nine games for them in that stretch. He pitched as many as two and two-thirds innings in an appearance, so he can go deep if he needs to pitch multiple innings. He only got into one game and pitched one inning in the NLDS. He just wasn't really needed all that often, so he is extremely rested and can pitch in most games in this series if needed and and give the Dodgers some innings in the back end of that bullpen because that has been a concern for them at times this season. Jansen has looked better of late than he did earlier in the season, of course, as he underwent health issues. But I think relative to Milwaukee's pen, there's still some shakiness there. And Maeda seems just like the the best bet to be the lockdown guy in this series. Yeah, I wonder what happens if, if Jansen blows a game. I think that's something that we've really taken for granted with the Dodgers for years and years and years. And I'm less confident in him now than I have been maybe at any point since he reached the majors as a pitcher. Um, so, Zach, who do you, who's your – so we've got Kent Maeda as one player the series could hinge on. Zach, who's yours? I talked about Ryu a minute ago, but I think the actual X factor I'm looking at is Walker Bueller, who is probably slated to start game three. He was excellent in the play-in game, or I guess the tiebreaker game, against the Rockies. Uh, and for almost the entirety of his performance against the Braves, he just – ran into that one snag. The problem is that snag cost him five runs, and you can't do that against this Brewers lineup that, I mean, if Eric Kratz is hitting, then they have capable hitters from every spot in the lineup, and they have a really, I think, a a good home field advantage right now. Bueller won't face that because he'll be back in L.A. where he's pitched a lot better this year. So I think even if that was just incidental based on the way the Dodgers rotation will shake out, that gives him an advantage and I think the ability to tap into his full potential to to stimmy this lineup. And it's not just that Bueller gave up five runs. It's the, the way in which he gave up five runs and it suddenly just looked like he had developed the yips in between innings. It was very, very disconcerting. Um, my guy's Corbin Burns. I think partially because I just love Corbin Burns. Uh, I've... But he's emblematic of you sort of step outside that that troika of uh, Knable, Hader, and Jeffress that has led the back end of the Brewers bullpen. They've needed some of these guys to be able to go multiple innings, to be able to come in in high leverage situations. I mean, we saw the the importance of Joaquin Soria in game one uh, and again throughout that series against Colorado. I think Burns is going to be the guy who gets Milwaukee he's going to be the bridge to the really heavy hitters. And if he pitches as well as he did against Colorado, I don't know where, where the Dodgers are going to get their runs. Uh, So, you know, you sort of expect guys like Hader and Jefferson can able to, to shut down opposing offenses, but maybe one of them will blow up at at some point during the the series. You know, Jefferson looked a little shaky from time to time, but the, I think you, you, even in a bullpen this deep, you, plan to score your runs against the fourth, fifth, and sixth best uh, pitchers coming out of the pen. And what Burns does will 
do as much as anybody to determine uh, the course of this series. And in addition to that, you know, I I want to single out, um, you know, Orlando Arcia and Eric Kratz and Hernan Perez, guys who we don't think of as particularly good hitters. I mean, the Brewers have done a lot to like, I don't know, they're playing Travis Shaw at second base from time to time. Like that's how hard up they are for, for offense out of their catcher and middle infield positions. And those guys hit against Colorado. And if they don't, then this, this lineup is, you know, as deep as it is with Sean Moustakis and uh, most of all Kane and Yelich, this lineup can get really shallow. And if you're going the bottom third of the order without really having a shot to to score runs, I mean, we saw what that did to Colorado in the first round. So those guys have to keep it up as well. So Burns and then I guess collectively the the bottom third of the Brewers order would be the, the places I would look for for this series to be won or lost. Do you trust Jeffress more than Jansen at this point? Is that what this opinion is now? Because I think, yes, Jansen's been shaky, but Jeremy Jeffress looked really shaky against the Rockies too, and I know he's had an incredible season, but I don't know, maybe we'll just see four blown saves in this series, and that would make the end of games more exciting. But that's, I, I hope that's so. definitely a possibility. Um, I don't know. I hope it happens when Zach's the one who has to try to get home <laughs> after. <laughs> let's let's hope all the all the games at Dodger Stadium go 14 innings after blown saves, and, and I can get out of Miller Park before last call. Um, I don't know because at at his peak, Jansen was just as automatic as closers get, and Jeffress, even when he's even when he's been good, has not been that level of pitcher. Maybe just the the contrast is shaking me a little bit. Like it's, it's possible that I'm overstating how much chance has fallen, fallen off because he had so much farther to fall. Um, but at this point I might trust Jeffers more than Jansen. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm panicking. Maybe I'm, I'm overreacting, but, but I need Kenley Jansen to have a good series in order, you know, to really show it to me in this series, particularly. And it's not just how he's looked shaky at from, from time to time down the stretch or throughout the course of the season, it's it's how he pitched in the in the last year's World Series too. So you know we've seen. I need to see it again in order to to believe again. That's the the way I'd put it. Can I offer one more Dodgers bullpen take? Go for it. Pedro Baez is good. Oh God! <laughs> I know the only thing people know about Pedro Baez is that he pitches slow. But did you know that Pedro Baez led all Dodgers relievers in WAR this year? That he had a fantastic ERA, that in two playoff games, he got seven outs, didn't allow a hit, allowed only one walk. Some of those outs came for the likes of Acuna and Albies, good hitters in the Braves lineup. I'm not saying that Pedro Baez should be the closer instead of Kenley Jansen, and I'm not even saying we should stop the jokes about how you can go eat an entire meal in the span it takes him to throw one pitch to the second. But I think Pedro Baez is good, and he deserves the credit while we also continue to make those jokes. I'm glad you were watching while Pedro Baez was pitching because that's the entire because the <laughs> the Dodgers game was always the last one in that you know the group of three or four and that's when I went and did the dishes or, or did laundry it was during Pedro Baez's inning because I knew I'd have time. Um, yeah, yeah, he's good. Uh, <laughs> he must be doing something right, to right? Stay employed despite being unwatchable. <laughs> so I mean, I sometimes wonder whether just taking so long whether being willing to break that norm of actually keeping the game moving is an advantage. Like if you're willing to just make people wait and wait and tolerate the the ire that you're getting from the spectators, then maybe it helps you because hitters get off their game facing someone who is slower than anyone else they ever face. 
Yeah, particularly when you're coming up with those high leverage situations. I mean, how long was Jonathan Papelbon one of the uh, mm-hmm. one of the best closers in baseball? Um, yeah, God, I just I don't want to think about Pedro Baez. <laughs> so let's. I I will say it's it feels like it's a little weird that we haven't talked. We've it feels like we've talked way more about the Brewers than the Dodgers. I don't know if that's just. The Dodgers are familiar. Like we've done this each of the past six seasons, so there's mm-hmm. not that much new to say. Yeah. Um, have we talked about Kershaw at all? Yeah, except to say he's starting game one. Zach, I know you have your your Kershaw analysis ready to go, right? Yeah, it's hard to find new things to say about him. He's been in this same place for a while. I think the first start of the playoffs for him against Atlanta was maybe indicative of the kind of pitcher he is right now. He had his lowest strikeout rate since, I think, 2010. It was barely more than league average. And against Atlanta, he struck out only three hitters in eight shutout innings. I think he's going to need to have a different kind of performance to be successful against Milwaukee. Atlanta, in the regular season, swung at the highest percentage of first pitches uh, on 0-0 counts of any team. Milwaukee was toward the bottom of those rankings, obviously just at the top of their lineup alone. Lorenzo Kane and Christian Yelich are really patient hitters, so Kershaw won't be able to go to the same route, but it's not like he's had no good games in the playoffs before. I wouldn't necessarily expect an implosion. It's just kind of at this point, it's not necessarily a huge surprise if there is one in the playoffs. All right, well, we're bumping up against 45 minutes or so for for this episode, so let's get it to predictions and then wrap everything up. Uh, Ben, who you got? How many games? Who's the MVP? Well, sticking with our theme of repeats, I expect more repeats here, so I think that the Dodgers will make it back to the World Series and face the Astros again. I'll go Dodgers in six, and while I'm making my boring, predictable predictions, I will pick a repeat here, too. Justin Turner was the co-MVP, I believe, in last year's NLCS, and We've talked a lot and marveled at Christian Yelich's transformation and his Bonzian second half of the season, but the second best hitter in baseball in the second half was Justin Turner, and that had a lot to do with the Dodgers' resurgence. Obviously, he was absent when they got off to their terrible start this season, then he was somewhat rusty and diminished when they were scuffling, and he was himself again, or even better, down the stretch, and that was a big part of their success, so... I'm going to go with the very obvious pick of Justin Turner and whether you think there's something to do with postseason stats and whether you believe in clutchness. He also has a career 1,000 plus OPS in the postseason, so he's got that covered too. All right, Zach. We talk too much about baseball because I also wrote down Dodgers and six, which is incredibly (laughs) boring and the same. Uh, I think... The MVP I'm selecting is Max Muncy, who might not just play enough to get the MVP if the Brewers start, say, Miley and Gio Gonzalez in four out of the seven games, then he just might not start enough. But he hit two home runs against the Braves. He cooled down a little bit over the summer, and it seemed like pitchers were realizing how to get him out. And then he just stormed back again down the stretch. He's been really hot of late, so... I'm sticking with the Max Muncy train, which has been one of the most fun stories of this baseball season. You're right. You guys are boring. I'm going with Milwaukee in seven. Um, <laughs> Excellent. I, to paraphrase former podcast guest uh, Andy McCullough, these Dodgers just don't have the smell. I, I'm i not scared of this Dodgers team in the way that I have been uh, in the past few seasons. I think, and for my MVP, um, 
within the the realm of picking the Brewers to win, this is about as boring as it, as it gets. Yel- Christian Yelich is imposing himself on not just down the stretch, but that first playoff series against Colorado. Just the, I mean, you talked about him being Bonzi and the amount he's walking is just incredible. Just he's on base all the time. And that's going to be hugely important, particularly if the bottom half of that lineup cools down at all from as well as they played against Colorado. Um, I could see him being on base literally half the time or more stealing another couple bases, uh, hitting a couple key doubles or home runs. I, he will, he has the, he has the potential to carry this team in a way that very few individual position players carry playoff baseball teams. So give me Milwaukee in seven. Give me Christian Yelich for the MVP. Um, anything else? No, I'm glad that you salvaged our predictions with at least one. Right. At least one of us is going to get one of these series right. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope we get a seven game series. Just it feels really weird not to have baseball for two days. It feels like the Yankees Red Sox game kind of felt like an elimination game atmosphere. But even then, if Gary Sanchez had walked off with a home run, the Red Sox still would have had Chris Sale in game five. So we haven't had quite the level of tension that we've come to expect from October. All right. Well, here's to tension. Here's to this next week being full of anxiety. Um, That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Ben Lindbergh and Zach Cram for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for stitching today's episode together. Thanks to Justin Verlander, Matt Barnes, and Craig Council for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the weekend's action, and we'll see you next time.